20 degree weather that's back home. And the snow and the ice and everything else that's back there gave us a good time to be here. And um, it's just a joy. Will you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your many blessings, including the gift of worship this morning. We ask that you continue to be with us during this service, but also as we go into the world to serve you. We ask your blessing upon this service, and right now I'm especially upon this sermon. Lord, we ask your blessing. In your name we pray. Amen. I had um, a favorite spot high up on a hill in some woods in Bolingbrook called Winston Woods. I used to like to go there and sit and watch the activities of the city landscape. It had a fabulous view of the whole region. I could see individual little nuggets of the activities of the entire area, and I could just enjoy the beauty of the spot. I brought a picture of that view, and you can see all of the little nuggets if you'd like to see the picture after the service. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is kind of like that little spot. Ephesians offers a breathtaking view of that whole biblical landscape. From Ephesians, we get a magnificent, breathtaking, beautiful view of theology that's relevant today. One resource, one of my resources wrote, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written because Paul wrote to ordinary people, Christians living in the world just like all of us. I imagine that you have grown to feel this way because I've heard that you also have been studying Ephesians. Today, I'd like to look at a couple of nuggets from Ephesians, one from chapter 1 and one from chapter 2. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, shows us how each person of the Trinity is involved in the salvation of God's people. The first one, God the Father, comes to us from Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. 4 through 6. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to the goodwill and the plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the Son whom he loves. Reverend Steve Shepard told a story. He said two men boarded a coast-to-coast -coast flight and were seated next to each other 
on that commercial plane after reading that on-flight magazine that we all know. The first man turned to the other and asked, what do you do? And the man replied, well, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, the first man said quickly, he says, oh, I don't believe in that religious stuff. It's, it's for kids, you know. Like the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The minister politely laughed, asked the other man what he did for a living, and he said, oh, I'm an astronomer. And the minister said, oh, that stuff. I thought it was for just kids, you know, like the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> Amen? Christianity is not just for kids, nor is the starry universe. Both have to do with God, our creator. God was planning something big before we ever knew it. God's plan is eternal because he set it out before the creation of the world. Because it's effective right now. And because it reaches to the future of the end of time. God the Father chose us before the creation of the world. He destined us to be adopted as his children. He blesses us, and he accomplishes all things according to his counsel and his will. The second part of this is God's eternal plan is being worked out day by day, and guess what? We're all a part of it. Everywhere we look in our world, we can see God's hand at work purchased by the Son, by his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. Our scripture going on in verse 7. We have been ransomed through, through his son's blood, and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured out over us with wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, God revealed his hidden design to us, which is according to his good will and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ. I'm going to say that again. This is what God planned for the climax of all times. To bring things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined to the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. Another story from Reverend Shepherd. He says, a woman was at work when she received a phone call that her daughter was very sick 
with a fever. She left her work. She stopped by the pharmacy to get some medication. She got back in her car and found that she had locked her keys in the car. Been there, done that. <laughs> she didn't know what to do. So she called home and told the babysitter what had happened. The babysitter told her that the fever was getting worse. She said, well, you might find a coat hanger and use that to open the door. The woman looked around and found an old rusty coat hanger that had been thrown down on the ground, possibly by someone else who at the same time or another had locked their keys in their car. Then she looked at the hanger and said, I don't know how to do this. So she bowed her head. She asked God to send her some help. Within five minutes, an old rusty car pulled up with a dirty, greasy, bearded man who was wearing an old biker skull rag on his head. And the woman thought, this is what you sent me? <laughs> but she was desperate. And so she was also very thankful. The man got out of his car and asked her if he could help. And she said, yes, yes, my daughter is very sick. I stopped to get her some medication and I locked my keys in my car. I must get home to her, please. Can you use this hanger to unlock my car? And he said, sure, no problem. He walked over to the car, and in less than a minute, the car was opened. She hugged the man, and through her tears, she said, thank you so very much. You are such a nice man. And the man replied, lady, I am not a nice man. I just got out of prison today. I was in prison for car theft and have only been out for about an hour. I like that story. The woman hugged the man again and with sobbing tears coming down her face, she cried out, oh, oh, thank you, God. You sent me a professional. <laughs> Admittedly, we all need help sometimes in our lives. Amen? But God has sent us a professional to help us. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth lived a sinless life, and died on the cross in place for our sins. He forgave our sins and brought us back from all of the sins of the world that seek to own us. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. The only way, the only way, that we can stand before Christ, before God, is in Jesus Christ, the professional. The only way we can have our sins forgiven 
is if we are in Jesus Christ. I recently read that if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us a teacher, an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us a banker. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. Amen? Without God's intervention, we are all hopelessly enslaved to sin. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ who could redeem us and set us free from sin's penalty over power, over death. Paul states that the blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed us and made us the recipient of his grace that we did not deserve at all. The third part of Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 shows us how the Holy Spirit seals and applies the benefits of Jesus Christ's works of salvation. Verse 13. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is our down payment for our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. I found another story. This one's coming from Reverend Smead. He opens it by saying, he says, true or a parable, it speaks to yielding ourselves to the healing of the Holy Spirit. He says of a missionary, he says, while serving at a small field hospital in Africa, every two weeks I traveled by bicycle through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. It was a journey of two days and required camping overnight at the halfway point. On one of these journeys, I planned to collect money from a bank and purchase medicine as well as the other needed supplies. Upon arriving at the city, I saw two men fighting, and one was seriously injured. I treated his injuries, and I told him about Jesus Christ. I then traveled the two days and arrived back at the missionary hospital without incidents. A few weeks later, a couple of weeks later, I repeated my journey, and when I arrived back at the city, I was approached by the young man that I had helped. He told me, sneeze is coming. (laughs) Sorry. He told me that he knew I carried money and medicine. He said, some friends and I followed you into the jungle knowing you would be camping overnight. We planned to kill you and take your money as well as the drugs. But just as we were about to jump your camp, we saw that you were surrounded by 26 armed guards. At this, I laughed and told him that I certainly was all alone out there in that jungle that night at that campsite. 
but the young man pressed the point, saying, No, sir, no, sir. I was not the only person to see the guards. My five friends also saw them, and we all counted them. And it was because of those 26 armed guards that we were afraid, and we left you alone. At this point in the message, a man in the audience jumped up to his feet and interrupted the missionary and asked the exact day that this incident had happened. The missionary told him, and the man excitedly told this story. He said, on the night of your incident in Africa, it was morning here, and I was preparing to play golf. I was about to tee off when I felt the urge to pray for you. In fact, the urging of the Holy Spirit was so strong that I left the golf, golf course and immediately I called forth other men to meet me at the church to pray for you. If you were here with me that day, will you please stand up? The men who were there, who had met together to pray, stood up. The missionary wasn't concerned with who they were, but he wept as he counted their number. That's right. There were how many? Paul says in the first part of 14 that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, with the promise of the Holy Spirit sent to dwell within us as a mark of ownership, as the mark of authenticity, as that we belong to God, his children, by adoption. He sent the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. Like a down payment on the purchase of a property, the Holy Spirit is true proof that we belong to God and that there is so much more yet to come. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Holy Spirit gives us faith to believe in him. The Holy Spirit changes our will to receive him as our Savior. The Holy Spirit brings us into a right relationship with God. We have many gifts from the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, I think that one of them is faith. The second gift is that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's word. We grow in faith as we read God's word, as we hear God's word, and as we study God's word. Other gifts from the Holy Spirit are such as helping us in our prayers, guiding us down the path that Christ would have us go, teaching us and empowering us for ministry with all of our spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches us that each of the Trinity was involved in the salvation of all sinful men and women. God planned that he would bring salvation to his people, that the Son would come to earth to purchase their salvation by his life, death, and resurrection. 
and three, that the Holy Spirit would apply that salvation by enabling us all to believe in the gospel. Part two of this sermon is looking at chapter two. This is a chapter describing God's grace, which was a perfect song for you all to sing this morning. Thank you. It's funny how God does that, isn't it? A Sunday school teacher had heard a definition of grace that he liked, and so he tried it out on his Sunday school class. He repeated this definition to them several times, but it didn't seem to sink in very well. The next day, he was walking down the street, making his way through the piles of snow and slush. You don't know anything about that, do you? (laughs) Chicago. (laughs) And Bobby, one of the boys in his Sunday school class, saw him coming, ducked behind a hedge, and he made a couple of snowballs. The teacher says, well, you can guess what's coming. When I went past him, he fired away. But he missed my back, and he hit me right on the ear. I saw stars, and my hat fell in the mud. Bobby saw what he had done. He bolted from the hedge, and he ran for home. The teacher said that when his head cleared, he was sorely tempted to try to catch him and just to wail the daylights out of him, or at least go and tell the father. Uh, I don't know which is worse. But then he thought of his Sunday school lesson, and he decided to practice grace on him. The teacher knew that Bobby needed and wanted a fishing pole because Bobby had borrowed his many times. So the teacher bought Bobby a fishing pole and took it over to his home. He guessed Bobby saw him coming because Bobby was nowhere to be seen. The teacher handed the pole to his mother and told her to give it to Bobby as a birthday present. He also told her to tell him that he knew his birthday was two months off. About an hour later, there was a timid knock on the teacher's door. And when the teacher opened it, Bobby held that fishing pole out to him. Bobby said, I brought your fishing pole back. I can't take it. And when the teacher asked him why, he answered, if you had known that it was me that hit you in the ear with that snowball, you wouldn't have given it to me. The teacher's answer startled Bobby. The teacher says, that's exactly why I gave it to you, Bobby. I don't understand, Bobby replied. And he said, Bobby, what was the Sunday school lesson about yesterday? And Bobby said, guess what? I don't remember. (laughs) It was about grace. And grace is giving or receiving something that is needed but not deserved. Bobby's eyes brightened, and a slow grin spread over his face 
as he slowly began to understand. And the teacher said, all right, Bobby, what is grace? And quick as a flash, Bobby answered, it's a fishing pole. And the teacher said, that's right, Bobby. It's a fishing pole when you needed a fishing pole and you didn't deserve it and you got one anyway. Amen? Have we ever experienced amazing grace in our lives? Maybe it was when a policeman stopped us for speeding or running a stop sign and just gave us a warning when we deserved a full ticket. Uh-oh, I'm seeing head shake. <laughs> Perhaps it was a time when we said hurting words to someone and they forgave us. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that grace is the centerpiece of God's salvation and that we have access to God's abundant love and mercy and forgiveness because of God's amazing grace. Do you all know the story behind the, the song, the hymn, Amazing Grace? I'm seeing lots of yeses and noes. John Newton is the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. He was born in London in, on July 24th, 1725. His mother provided a Christian upbringing for him. And, but in 1732, 13 days before John's seventh birthday, his mother died. At age 11, John was sailing the high seas with his father. And at 17, he was wholly involved in the ungodly vices that follows semen. He had laid aside every religious principle he had ever learned or followed from his mother. He became a deserter, he was arrested as a felon, and he contemplated suicide. He worked with slave traders, he followed this ungodly path for many years. But finally, he remembered his mother's Christian upbringing and teaching and her godly life and he considered his ungodly lifestyle and his wretched life. And on May 10, 1748, when his ship nearly sunk in a violent storm, he trusted God as his personal savior. 16 years later, Newton was, an ordained, was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. It was then in collaboration with William Cowper that they published Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is one of the most familiar Christian hymns in the world. Even non-Christians know it and sing it. It's especially moving to hear it on the bagpipes at funerals. I, a bit of humor, I was so surprised to hear Mel Gibson and James Garner sing it in one of my favorite movies, Maverick. We sing the words, but do we ever stop to think about what they mean? 
to understand God's amazing grace, one of my resources stated that we must go to the Magna Carta of God's grace. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. At one time you were like a dead man because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. From the time of Adam, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we have all slipped and stumbled, deviated, gone the wrong direction, whatever it is that you would like to say. But we have all missed the mark of God's righteousness and holiness. If not now, think about the times of our youth. And so we find ourselves separated from God, and separation from God means death. We are all dead because of, as various versions of our Lord's Prayer say, our trespasses or transgressions or sins or in our debt to God. And because of them, going on in verse 2, you used to act like most people in our world do. You followed the rule of destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons who are, whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment, just like everyone else. In other words, we used to live like the rest of the world in the world's accepted but immoral lifestyles and godless motives. We used to say, everybody's doing it, so it must be okay. The truth is that we are either walking with the world or we are walking with God, and there's no middle ground. Amen? When people need God's grace, they won't admit to it, because I think they don't really realize that they are spiritually dead. They think they are just fine the way they are and don't need any help from God. They say, oh, I've never committed murder or robbery. Oh, I don't need God's grace. I'm basically a good person, so I don't need God's grace. Reverend Paul Wallace says, if people do not know how bad their condition is, they're not going to take the treatment. If we haven't been told we have cancer or leukemia and how bad it is and how much time we have, we won't take the chemo or the radiation or the bone marrow transplant. We would think that it was unnecessary, optional, or even harmful to our lives. We offer people salvation. And they're asking us, from what? And unless we know that we are sinful through and through, we cannot and will not experience the grace of God. 
Paul shows us the grace of God going on in verse 4. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were yet dead. And as a result of those things that we did wrong, he did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. He did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Do you know the name Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll? He says, grace is to extend favor or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. Grace is to extend favor or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. Another resource said, simply put, grace is giving God's best for our worst. Someone else said, grace is everything for nothing to those who deserve nothing. None of us deserve God's grace. All of us deserve God's wrath and justice and, yes, even hell. But God gave us his amazing grace, and it is not only a one-time deposit of grace. He continues to do so every moment of every one of our lives as a child of God. For Paul, grace is the essence of God's decisive saving act in Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death. I'd like to give you an, an acronym for GRACE, the G-R-A-C-E. The G, God's riches at Christ's expense. Will you say that with me? God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul says that grace is all God because God is love. Amen? God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is God. There's an old story about a $20 bill. Anybody want a $20 bill? Who still wants it? What if I do this? And I don't know. Rick, I might need help to pick this up in a minute. Okay, who still wants it? No matter what I did to this $20, we still wanted it because it did not decrease in value. It was still $20, was it not? Many times in our lives, we are dropped, crumbled, and ground into the dirt by the decisions that we make and the circumstances that come our way. And eventually, we might even feel worthless. But no matter what happened or what will happen, 
God still desires us and loves us. There are no sins that God's grace can't cover. There are no sinners that God's grace cannot forgive. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things, future things, not powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other thing that is created. There is nothing I can do to make God love me more or to make God love me less. Dirty or clean, crumpled or finely creased, we are all still priceless to God, and this is God's amazing grace. Verse 8, you are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something that you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. God is saying here that if people think that doing good or having good behavior or achieving good things could earn God's favor, they're all wrong. Grace is nothing of our doing. No one, no one can earn their way to heaven no matter how hard they try. And instead, everything is a gift of God. A famous preacher died and went to heaven. Peter meets him at the pearly gates and tells him that he needs 100 points to get into heaven. You know this story? Peter tells him that he gets one point for pastoring a church for 45 years. He gets one point for teaching Sunday school. He gets one point for working at the soup kitchen. Starting to sweat, the pastor says, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Peter says, bingo. Grace of God, 97 points. We can't work our way into heaven, and God's grace makes it all the difference. And finally, in verse 10, Paul says, Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. Grace works in our lives to transform us from what we are to what Christ calls us to be. Grace is not a one-time offering on God's part. Grace is a journey that continues throughout our lives. God keeps on giving. We grow in grace as we respond to his grace. Grace doesn't grow us and pour out his grace upon us for us to sit around. Grace through the Holy Spirit, God gives us abilities and gifts to transform us, and for us to serve God in others in doing good things. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures.